Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audra Rinlisbacher, founder of The Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please share them out write a review, and join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group for the after the podcast discussion that we hold throughout the week. This being 4th of July, uh, a huge opportunity to talk about freedom and liberty this week as all of us in the United States celebrate our political liberties. And it's going to be a little bit different experience today. I don't have something super formal planned. What I have in front of me is my 1828 dictionary, a couple books that I grabbed, some quotes and some notes. And I just want to share some thoughts, just give you some jumping off places of things to ponder this 4th of July. Um, Last year I did a video with the story of Abraham and Sarah Clark, which I'll repost in the Facebook group and you can watch that. Uh, It's also on YouTube if you want to go there and subscribe. Haven't done videos in a while, but there are videos up there. And so I just want to share out some of my thoughts about freedom and liberty today as we think about who we are as a nation where we've come to as a nation, and uh, what the cost of freedom is. I remember years ago when I was first working on a liberal education. Now, I'm coming from a background of doing well in school, taking you know the best classes at the high school, going to a really great private school, and... Um, you know, taking an American history class there. And I have to say that it wasn't until I was at a little liberal arts college and we started reading some original works that I really started to understand my country and where we were and how we became who we are. And uh, it was really transformational for me. Um... I read about George Washington and actually some original documents, his um, journal and some things on just James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and, and Witherspoon. And I just had no idea. I, I was watching, I've been kind of doing a little Jordan Peterson binge lately, and um, I'll talk about something he said in a minute, but I watched a, a video yesterday happened upon a, a little video by him. He has such an incredible education that much of what he says really resonates with me because I have such a similar background in education, and um, and I agree with so much of what he says because those are the true concepts and principles that you discover when you're in those, in those works. And so anyway, he, um, he was talking about Gulag Archipelago and I was turned on to Alexander Solzhenitsyn early on in my liberal arts career as well. And, um, it was, it was a great experience 
we read World Split Apart at a seminar. There used to be these um, face-to-face with greatness seminars that were valuable when they were happening. And anyway, he was in these Russian concentration camps basically for a long time. And he wrote uh, Gulag Archipelago, super long. I, have, I haven't read it. I, I've, I've skimmed parts of it. But the point is, Jordan Peterson was talking about him. And he was talking about these works that he wrote and talking about Stalin and Mao and the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, probably between the two of them, close to 150 million lives taken um, through their reigns. And Jordan Peterson was just making the comment that um, Schultz and Nietzsche, along with many other writings of that sort, are not even in our educational systems. And he was just so upset, and he was just saying how deplorable it is, how we can tell what a horrible (laughs) educational system we have, that most people in the West and the United States aren't even aware of many of those atrocities. They're not. And he says, you know, he says, I think it's because there's still a lot of communistic um, sympathy in, in the United States, but but um, Schultz and Eitzen is exposing that and 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 wrote about you know how freedom was taken away from those people through the tyrants that governed them and um, what the cost was, and then in a world split apart, which is one of the one of the many great readings that we cover in level three, it, it's a, it's a, was an address he gave at Harvard in the seventies, I think. And in that address, he talked about how the West was embracing the letter of the law and forgot, had forgotten the spirit of the law and how detrimental that was to us and um, talked about Anyway, there's a lot I can't go into. The point being that he talked about how the truth is, I think how how Schultz and Eitzen said it was, the truth is almost invariably bitter. It's it's almost never sweet. And Jordan Peterson echoes that, and many of these great authors echo that as well. Um, It reminds me of this quote by Calvin Coolidge, who I love. He says... um, We come here today in defense of some of the great realities of life. We come to continue the guarantee of progress in the future by continuing a knowledge of progress in the past. We come to proclaim our allegiance to those ideals which have made the predominant civilization of the earth. We come because we believe that thought is the master of things. We come because we realize that the only road to freedom lies through a knowledge of the truth. And I can't tell you how many of these authors make this connection between truth and freedom you know, uh, Jesus Christ, (laughs) you know, um, the truth shall make you free. And um, truth is usually bitter and difficult to swallow and freedom has a cost. And uh, I was was looking at this um, Henry Grady Weaver happened to, to glance at a page as well from him. He said, he's talking about about our personal freedoms, not our our political freedoms. But he says, your freedom of action may be forbidden, restricted, or prevented by force. The robber, kidnapper, or jailer may bind your hands and feet and put a gag in your mouth. 
But the fact remains that no amount of force can make you act unless you agree, perhaps with hesitation and regret, to do so. I know this all sounds hair-splitting and academic, but it leads to a very important point, in fact, two important points. One, individual freedom is the natural heritage of each living person, and two, freedom cannot be separated from responsibility. Your natural freedom, your control over your own self-energy was born in you along with life itself. It is a part of life itself. No one can give it to you, nor can you give it to someone else. Nor can you hold any other person responsible for your acts. Control simply cannot be separated from responsibility. Control is responsibility. And I just can't tell you how many works that is echoed in, how many great uh, men and women teach that principle that freedom comes down to um, personal freedom and personal freedom is control and control is responsibility and truth is the only way to freedom. Um, this was something that our founding generation understood much better than we do now. It's something that we spend time on in level two when we read many great writers on the details and back kind of backstory and deeper understanding of natural law and principles. And, and we see those, those connections, um, with that, I, I'll tell you, this is something, this is a little story I tell in one of the videos in level one of the Academy. Um, it's from one of the little house books. I'm trying to remember which one. They live in town now. It might be a little town on the prairie. I'm not positive. And, and Laura goes to school. She hadn't gone to school. She'd been homeschooled. But she, she goes to school now. And it's the summertime. And, and she goes into town for the Independence Day celebration. And in, in those days, and this is a little bit after the Civil War, I think. Um, maybe it's a little bit before. I can't remember exactly. It seems like she's in the 1870s. Anyway, um, the entire town stands, stands reverently as the man on the podium reads the entire Declaration of Independence aloud. Now, when's the last time the average U.S. citizen read the entire Declaration of Independence just on their own? Um, it, it reminds me of a friend who was trying to be more involved politically, and she went to a city meeting for some candidates who were running for for city council. And, uh, she was definitely more politically aware and, and, uh, had her head on straight and, and knew more. Anyway, she, uh, she, one of the questions that she asked these city council people that were running was whether or not they'd read the declaration in the constitution. And, and I think one of those that were running had the rest had not. So it's very telling when, when we don't even understand the basis of our own political systems that we want to increase freedom in our country. But this idea about, um, about personal freedom tied to responsibility, truth, bringing freedom, and then the individual, our individual freedom creating our, our civil freedom is, is really profound. And, and all I can do is kind of give you some thoughts and some quotes today to, to kind of ponder over the holiday and, and hopefully these, these ideas will motivate you to get more information, um, about our country, about, uh, who we are and, and why, how we became who we are. In fact, before I tell you a little bit more about Laura Ingalls, I want to read you something else from Calvin Coolidge. 
because it really is telling about the importance of the 4th of July, the importance of what um, the American people did. He says, um, uh, he's talking about... He's talking about George Washington, actually, in this lecture. Um, It was some 15 months from that morning when Patriot blood stained Lexington Green to the day when the Liberty Bell first rang in Philadelphia. Some 15 months away lay Saratoga, a purely American victory, which has been marked as one of a few decisive battles in all history. It was not a high-sounding phrase or in the voting of resolutions that the revolution was made or won, but in the service and sacrifice of the people in their homes and above all of the army in the field, um, you can you can read some incredible stories about the personal sacrifices that were made. Um, Thomas Jefferson lost his wife and and child in the in the Revolutionary War. They they were they ran out of the house to escape troops that were coming and uh, hid in the woods. And and the illness the sickness they contracted there led to their deaths. Uh, There are many stories of just average people, store owners and shopkeepers who burned their shops and their fields um, as the troops made their way to their area so that those things couldn't be um, resold. Just the incredible amount of sacrifice. I'm going to tear up if I say too much, but um, I, I cannot impress upon you how this absolutely changed me forever to have these stories in my in my mind and in my heart and to have an understanding of the 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 truths of liberty the the principles of liberty that our founding um fathers understood and were willing to sacrifice and die for and um, and really those incredible personal sacrifices that were made Anyway, Calvin Coolidge goes on. It was not the declaration, but the army which resisted tyranny, which, of course, in, in, in reliance on those principles of liberty that are in the declaration, uh, the army breaking the power of the king to impose his unlawful will upon the people of the colonies, broke his power to impose an unlawful will upon the people of the realm, and which, preserving the ancient freedom of Englishmen in America, preserved the ancient freedom of Englishmen at home. That army was George Washington. Under him, the Americans made a sacrifice for liberty which was not local, it was universal. That sacrifice resisted then and has ever since been successfully resisting despotism everywhere. America in its beginnings was doing the work of the world. And that is so absolutely true. The, you know, the, the, the Liberty Bell, you know, in, in a very literal and figurative sense, rang around the world. And we see um, liberty increasing worldwide or attempts at freedom. And, and, it, and it was our cause that justified that triumph over despotism and tyranny for the liberty of the individual and uh, the political liberty the individual needed to be obedient to his own conscience, which brings us back to Laura Ingalls. She she listens reverently at the Declaration of Independence. She makes a comment that she, of course, knew it by heart because all the kids in school memorized the entire Declaration of Independence. Then they sing My Country, Tis of Thee. And then she shares her own kind of, I guess it's kind of a moral awakening. I think... I think we all have these, um, many of us in our teenage years where we know what we've been taught to that point, but now it's 
time um, to go out and live that. Now it's time to see that in the real world. I've told stories of of Suzuki and of other great men and women who had that kind of experience, like, who am I? What am I going to be? Who am I going to be? And and this was a really big moment for Laurel Ingalls, which is why she wrote it into her book. And this is a quote from her book. She says, and of course, she's speaking about herself in the third person. So she's saying she thought, she's talking about Laura. She thought, Americans won't obey any king on earth. Americans are free. That means they have to obey their own consciences. No king bosses Pa. He has to boss himself. Why? She thought, when I'm a little older, Pa and Ma will stop telling me what to do. And there isn't anyone else who has a right to give me orders. I will have to make myself be good. Her whole mind seemed to be lighted up by that thought. This is what it means to be free. It means you have to be good. Our Father's God, author of liberty, the laws of nature and of nature's God endow you with a right to life and liberty. Then you have to keep the laws of God, for God's law is the only thing that gives you a right to be free. So that ties back to really everything we're doing at the Mission Driven Mom in terms of this connection between the truth making us free and what is the truth. The truth goes back to those natural laws put in place by God from which flow true principles that we can learn and obey. And as we increase our personal freedom, we increase the freedom of all of those around us. In fact, it's interesting. I I just moved to a new area and I'm meeting new people. A, a, A wonderful woman at my church had a a little swim party for us and invited us to some other people and and introduced us to some other people. And, and of course, people ask me questions, our background and what we're doing and, you know, homeschooling and charter schools always comes up. And so why are you doing that? And I always try to give like an abridged version. It's so hard to do, (laughs) but, um, you know, I was talking to these people and, trying to explain, you know, and I'll say, well, I have a liberal arts education and I want my children to have that. No one knows what that phrase means. They only know the word liberal in its current definition, meaning the leftist party, right? Like, or in a, in a broader sense, someone who's generous and, you know, a a generous, liberal, open-minded person. But of course, if you haven't listened to very many of my podcasts or, you know, whatever, you're, you'll start to see that liberal actually is a term for a type of education. You can find this in the older dictionaries. You can find it in all the older writings, uh, the liberal arts, which is where our original bachelor's degree comes from, was a certain type of education going back to this idea, and it's so cool how these words are all connected, going back to this original idea of liber, this ancient Greek word, which is a root word um, in um, Greek and Latin for library and libro and liberty and liberal. So this intimate connection with freedom and education that you become more free to the degree that you have an education to make you free. Uh, one of my favorite all-time quotes is Mortimer Adler. He said, liberal education frees our minds by disciplining them. So there's this connection between we have to um, have an education that's broad and deep 
in quality works in order to increase our personal discipline, which increase which and that discipline comes when we find truth and we live it, right? And so then our personal discipline increases our personal liberty. And like Weaver was saying, that freedom is tied to that responsibility. Um, if you go back to um, the the eighteen twenty eight dictionary and you look up liberal, um, you know you'll see liberality, liberal, liberalized, liberate again to set someone free. This liberal arts education is to set you free, and um, of course, natural liberty is something that we're given. There's civil civil liberty and political liberty. It talks about. Um, anyway. It's, uh, it, it talks about liberty of the press, um, to be at liberty, freedom of action or speak beyond the ordinary bounds, but also to be very generous, to be very free with your things and your time, and to be a, um, a person who's very giving, societally, all those kinds of things. It's just, it's, it's so cool. So I was just doing these word studies, and I was going back to roots, and I was looking at um, this connection between freedom and liberty and discipline. And it's really, really a cool exercise to do. And you can see where all these things are connected. And I wanted, this is, this is so interesting. This is Hayek. He's part of the um, Austrian school of economics, which is also something that we work on in level three, because we aren't even taught Austrian economics, which is a principle centered economic approach, which is just really, really cool. And so um, Hayek is part of that discipline of Austrian economics, he wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom, and he talks about how he saw the he saw the the dissemination of certain ideas twice in his life, certain communistic and socialistic ideas, and he saw those ideas implemented in a society and the society decayed. And so he was writing this really to the British, but it took hold in America when it was first published. Uh, he didn't expect that. He wrote it in 1944 as a warning that if we continued to embrace socialistic ideas, we would eventually be in serfdom as so many other nations had been. And in the foreword to that book, he talks about this word liberal, which is really, really fascinating. He said, um, the fact that this book was originally written with only the British public in mind does not appear to have seriously affected its intelligibility for the American reader. But there is one point of phraseology which I ought to explain here to forestall any misunderstanding. I used throughout the term liberal in the original 19th century sense in which it is still current in Britain. In current American usage, it often means very nearly the opposite of this. It has been part of the camouflage of leftist movements in this country, helped by the muddle-headedness of many who really believe in liberty, that liberal has come to mean the advocacy of almost every kind of government control. I'm still puzzled why those in the United States who truly believe in liberty should not only have allowed the left to appropriate this almost indispensable term, but should even have assisted by beginning to use it themselves as a term of opprobrium. Of opprobrium. This seems to be particularly regrettable because of the consequent 
tendency of many true liberals to describe themselves as conservatives. It is true, of course, that in the struggle against the believers in the all-powerful state, the true liberal must sometimes make common cause with the conservative. And in some circumstances, as in contemporary Britain, he has hardly any other way of actively working for his ideals. But true liberalism is still distinct from conservatism, and there is danger in the two being confused. So then he goes on to explain some of that. Um, a conservative movement, this is his summary, by its very nature is bound to be a defender of established privilege and to lean on the power of government for the protection of privilege. The essence of the liberal position, however, is the denial of all privilege if privilege is understood in its proper and original meaning of the state, granting and protecting rights to some which are not available on equal terms to others. So... So fascinating, this kind of hijacking of the word liberal, so that now when I say I have a liberal arts education, no one understands what I'm talking about. They usually think they they usually think I mean that I studied arts of some kinds. And it's so it's so interesting to me because usually they don't even tell me that they don't understand what I mean. They just look at me like, I don't know if they don't want to look stupid or they don't care or what it is. But when I ask the follow-up question, well, do you know what I mean by liberal arts? They always say no, which means that when I say liberal arts, they just take it at face value because they don't understand. And I have to explain to them, it's the traditional education that we received in America until about the middle of the 20th century. It was dying out at the beginning of the 20th century and was virtually completely gone. But it's the reason that we have a bachelor's degree program. And it's the reason that we still have the humanities and the general studies. Those are kind of the hang on from, from the real education that people used to get. <laughs> so um, anyway, it, it, and and it, when you go back to the writings of the founders, and I didn't go grab this. I, there's other books I could have grabbed. I didn't, I didn't bother. But uh, you find that they, they're talking often about, okay, so we need to make sure that our education matches our, our governmental model and that people are educated to be free. They have to understand government and economic principles, and they have to understand this intimate link between truth and liberty and freedom and responsibility and duty. If you read a work older than about 100 years old, you won't hear a lot about rights. You'll hear a lot about duty. If you hear about rights, it'll be connected to duty. So, um, and and that's where I love Jordan Peterson because he, he, talks, he talks about how he didn't set out to make any kind of a political statement. He, he's a psychiatrist and and a, and a professor, what he was trying to do was talk to people about personal responsibility and how that's the way to personal freedom. And, but he said, but, but the reason there's a connection is that, you know, he started talking about the, the right of free speech and he said, but your rights are my responsibility. So I can't talk about rights without talking about responsibility. And then that, that gets us into, to duty and to what, what people, you know, consider, um, political conversation, but really our personal liberty is so intimately tied with our political liberty. They cannot be disconnected. And, and I'm going to end today by leaving you with some thoughts by Jordan Peterson and, um, where he makes these connections tied back to Socrates, which are also really true, which tie into democracy, 
which of course is the power of the people that they grant to their governmental entity to, you know, they give up some rights in order to have protection, blah, blah, blah. So we don't have time to get into all of that and all of the principles of liberty. And I know I'm just kind of rambling today and just talking about some ideas that came to my mind this 4th of July, but I just wanted to give you something to think about. It's kind of something to chew on and consider in terms of what you're doing right now as a mom, as a parent, as a citizen, as a spouse, you know, to increase your personal liberty. Because every step you take to get out of victim, every step you take to be a creator, every step you take to um, own those personal responsibilities and duties that you have with the greatest integrity you know how, every time you you engage in the struggle to discover truth and you embrace it in the face of the pain that it usually is accompanied with, you are creating you are increasing your own personal liberty and freedom, which increases the freedom of your family, which increases the freedom of your community and on and on it goes. And so I want to end with this connection, this really profound connection that Jordan Peterson made between democracy and conscience and personal liberty. So he's talking about, um, Socrates and he's talking about personal conscience, uh, which is, something that I've just studied extensively and feel so passionate about. And we talk about it in level one of the Academy in some depth. Um, so he's talking about his own kind of moral awakening in his early twenties. And that being an awakening really of his conscience. So he always knew, in effect, you can find quotes from Socrates, um, especially in apology talking about, you know, he always had this voice that told him what to do, this conscience. And, and, and the word that Socrates uses for it is daemon. Now, daemon as opposed to demon, a daemon is a good angel, a demon is a bad angel. And those all have a root word that's shared with the word also demos, which is a, the, the uh, root word for democracy, which means people. So those are tied together. You know, demons are below people, angels are above people. And when Socrates talks about his conscience, um, we, we've given it this word conscience. It's really not a helpful word because then we kind of have to describe what's actually happening to us because there's like this inner voice that's somehow speaking to us. Socrates used daemon, which was kind of something between a, a, a human and a God. And so he saw it as something above him guiding him. And, and the point that he made about it is that his, his daemon always told him what not to do. And it was a moral guide in all aspects of his life. And he had noticed from a child that it was present and that he also noticed that he could give it heed or he could ignore it, that there was some agent inside of himself that was like a neutral agent standing away from that experience, able to make a judgment and a choice And, um, and so Jordan Peterson in talking about his kind of his own moral awakening is talking about his own experience, very akin to Socrates and how he's talked to hundreds of his students through the years. He'll ask them, do you have this voice telling you what not to do? Have you had that kind of experience that you 
feel something or you, you know, kind of hear something. And he said, universally, everyone says yes. And then he asks, do you obey that conscience? Do you obey that voice? And universally, no, I don't always obey it. Which brings us back to mere Christianity. We don't have time to get into, but he talks about that exact same concept as well. Um, that's, uh, C.S. Lewis. So, um, he's, he's talking about this Socrates and this Damon and, and he's right. That's exactly, and I've read apologies. So, so he's absolutely right that this is the way that Socrates talks about his experience. And this is why he winds up dying because he says, my Damon is guiding me. And I made a commitment long ago that I would always do what my conscience dictate dictated. And this is what my conscience dictates. And so I'm going to follow it. And of course it changed the world. So, uh, we can see all the, you know, immeasurable amount of good that, that has come from that. So Jordan Peterson is comparing Socrates experience to his own experience and saying, you know, this is a universal phenomenon. It, it, it is absolutely a truth that we have this moral guide inside of us. And that there's this common root word between this daemon or our conscience and democracy, making that, that link, even in a, in a Greek word, in a very concrete way. And so I just want to finish up by quoting what Jordan Peterson says after he makes this connection that ties back into kind of everything I've talked about for the last half hour or so. Just some food for thought for you as um, you head into your 4th of July. He says, The polity will function if people attend to their consciences. So that's what the idea of democracy is. Take all of this taken into account, the polity, the government, the society, the state, the community will function if people attend to their consciences. And he goes on. That's the overlap of those conceptualizations. I think, and I think that it's the case. If we assume that the political state is something like the emergent consequence of the decisions of all of its citizens, we would assume that the wiser the decisions of the citizens, the more upright and functional the state. I can't see how it can be any other way. And perhaps the most upright, those who listen to their consciences more carefully, even play a disproportionately powerful role. And that is something that you and I can do something about right now, this 4th of July, to honor those who gave their businesses, their children, their lives for our freedom. We can best honor them by attending to our own consciences and by doing so, making our communities, our little homes, a haven, and our communities a little bit closer to that true liberty that we all desire. Thank you so much for joining me. If you don't have your free copy of my book, The Mission Driven Life, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab your free ebook or audio book, and I will see you next time.